Welcome to the GMAT Strategy Podcast. You're here because you believe there's a better way to study for the GMAT, and so do I. I created the GMAT Strategy to maximize your results and minimize your efforts so you can get to the fun parts about business school and life as quickly as possible. My name is Isaac Puglia, and I've been teaching GMAT classes and tutoring privately for the GMAT for over six years, and I personally have achieved a 99th percentile score on an official GMAT exam and helped hundreds of students get into the business schools of their choice. I'm excited to be a part of your MBA journey since I think the world can benefit from the best possible business leaders that we can find. And if this show is bringing you value, please share it with your friends and family who are studying for the GMAT so that together we can make this process as easy and painless for as many people as we possibly can. Let's go. So I'm working out of the 11th edition of the official guide guide still. And as always, I recommend that you pause the episode once I read the problem to you and write out exactly what you would write out as if you were on the test. At the bare minimum, I recommend visualizing how your scratch work would look in your mind so that you develop great scratch work habits over time. We're on problem number 18, which reads the ratio two to one third is equal to, and then they give you five answer choices. This one is, I think, uh, one of the more foundational questions that I've seen in an official guide. And this one is really just testing whether you understand ratios. But I I will give you a tip, which is most of the time on GMAT questions, you're going to want to express your ratios as fractions. And I think that's helpful here. So if you write it as two and then a fraction bar and then divide it by one third, that'll help you realize that in order to simplify the expression, you're going to be dividing by a fraction, which is the same as multiplying by the reciprocal of that fraction. The reciprocal of 1 over 3 is 3 over 1, so this would become 2 over 1 times 3 over 1, which equals 6 over 1. And then you can convert that back into a ratio, which would give you the correct answer of 6 to 1. So that's that question. I think I've probably mentioned this a couple times, but if you're struggling with those sort of core principles of fractions, decimals, percents, ratios, things like that, then I definitely recommend working through Manhattan Prep's Foundations of GMAT Math Book, which is an awesome resource for getting rock solid on those basics. Let's go to the next question. Number 19. Running at the same constant rate six identical machines can produce a total of 270 bottles per minute. At this rate, how many bottles could 10 such machines produce in four minutes? Okay, so perhaps obviously this one's a little bit more intricate than the previous one. And with rates questions in general, I found that the the best thing for people is to have a consistent system for setting up your rates questions. I think that you'll probably find that with rates questions, the mathematics are usually not too bad, and and you'll see that in this question, but getting things organized and figuring out how all the pieces fit together can be quite a challenge in rates questions. Um, If you are following the Manhattan Prep methodology, I'm definitely a fan of their RTD chart. But really, any it doesn't really matter which system you choose, in my experience. I think 
that just staying consistent with a visual approach to setting up rates questions is absolutely massive. So if you're self-studying and you're using only free resources, then come up with something that works for you and stick with it. Now, Sal's scratch work in the video, if, if you are checking that out, and I, I always link his video of the, his walkthroughs through the, these problems in the description of each episode. Uh, his scratch work is not horrific, but it's also not systematic in the way that I'm talking about. It's just totally linear, which I, I see a lot of people do, which is just like writing down the next thing that they're thinking of in the problem or the next thing the problem tells us just kind of like top to bottom on the page or left to right on the page. That's actually not a good idea for rates questions, in my opinion. Unless, of course, you're getting every single rates question right that you do, in which case, keep doing what you're doing. And like I always say, if it's not broken, don't fix it. But the toughest rates questions are going to ask you to make connections between pieces of information that are pretty disparate, and some type of chart or visual methodology can really, really help. So at the very least, what you'll want to do is just write rate times time equals distance or rate times time equals work somewhere on your page and then start filling in the different pieces of information that they give you as you read the problem. So you'll do one read through the problem without writing anything down if you're following my methodology and then you'll go back and reread and start writing everything that they've given you into some type of visual system. In this particular question, this is true of a lot of these machine-type rates questions, you'll see that Sal solves for the rate of one machine, and that's usually the key to machine problems. If you're ever stuck on a problem that involves a bunch of things with the same exact constant rate, always solve for the rate of one of those machines, or one robot, or whatever it is that you're solving for in that particular question. And the reason for that is that when two, three, four, five, six people or machines or whatever are working together, you always add their individual rates to find their combined rate. So what we're doing when we're finding the rate of one machine is we are sort of going backwards with that. And we're saying, okay, if six machines can produce 270 bottles, that would be the same identical rate added to itself six times, and then that result would equal 270. So all we're doing is undoing that addition to figure out what one machine is, and you'll see the virtue of doing that in this particular question. So what we're going to do is we're just going to divide 270 bottles per minute by six machines, and that will give us the bottles per minute per machine rate. <laughs> and that's kind of a weird unit to write down, bottles per minute per machine. But one of the best tips I can give you for word problems is always write out the units next to every single number that you write down. Don't just write the numbers down. I know that the voice in your head is probably saying, oh, this is slowing me down. It's going to take too long to write out these things. It's a pain in the neck. It's a drag. I don't want to do that. And it's totally fine to have all that stuff in your head. I strongly recommend not listening to those voices in your head because it's just way too easy to get confused. And I think the, the, the place that people burn the most time on the GMAT is a lot of times when they've done a problem right and then they get confused about what's happening or they just get lost in a problem and then they have to go back and reread, reorganize, and kind of reorient themselves. Now, some of that is probably inevitable just because the GMAT's pretty hard, but you would love to minimize the amount of time that you have to spend just redoing things on the test. This is a great way to create efficiency in the long run. So I like to think of the phrase, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. It's a bit of a paradox if you think about it, but um, it's okay to feel slow as long as you're finishing questions fast. And I think that when you speed through a question too quickly and you make a mistake in your setup or you lose track of what a number is, you'll burn a lot of time trying to just get back to where you were before. So I think just doing problems once the right way 
is the, is the best way to do a GMAT problem. So we're going to do 270 divided by 6, and a good way to handle this math is write it as a fraction, as you can probably tell if you've been listening to the past few weeks' episodes, I'm a big fan of expressing things as fractions, and then it's a nice move to break 6 in the denominator into 2 times 3, and that gives you the opportunity to cancel in the numerator and the denominator. So 27 is divisible by 3, that's 3 times 9, so we'll reduce the 3 in the denominator with the 27 in the numerator, and then add the zero back in on the end for 270, so that'll give us 90 divided by two, which would get us 45, and that's the single machine rate per minute. So what I would write down is 45 uh, B over M over M, <laughs> bottles per minute per machine. Or I might write BOT slash MIN slash MAC, something like that so I don't get confused. Now what the question asks us is how many can 10 machines do? So all we have to do is the opposite of dividing the rate now, and we are now gonna multiply that rate by 10. And that's the equivalent of saying, okay, if, if each one does 45 in a minute, and there were three of them, then we would do 45 plus 45 plus 45. But because there are 10 of them, we're gonna do 45 plus 45 plus 45 plus 45, et cetera, 10 times in a row. We're just adding the individual rates to get the combined rate. And how do you add a bunch of things that are the same to itself over and over? That's called multiplication. So we'll do 45 bottles per rate per minute per machine times 10 machines. The machine piece of the unit will cancel out, and that will give us 450 bottles per minute. At that point, we need to remember that we're not just being asked for how much they can make in one minute, but how many bottles they can produce in four minutes. So we take 450 bottles per minute, multiply by four minutes and that will get us 1,800 bottles, 1,800 bottles. So rates questions, they tend to hurt a lot of people's feelings because they are really challenging for, for a lot of people, I think, and yet somehow when you look at the solution, it seems straightforward and you think like, man, I should have known how to do that, but don't get trapped in that thinking that you should be better. It's, you just probably need practice and I would strongly recommend, if you need to, just running through, at the very least, every single question that's in the official guide for rates and it took me about two or three weeks to really get rates questions to sink in. I had to do a lot of repetition on them to realize that they're basically all the same and you can use the same type of setup in most questions, but there are maybe four or five techniques that you're gonna need to master in order to get uh, rates questions to click for you on a consistent basis because there's these little variations of different rates questions. So as always, if, if you're looking for printed materials, I recommend the Manhattan Prep Books. If you're looking for a digital class, a digital self-paced class, I think Target Test Prep is great. I think Magoosh is pretty good as well. If you're looking for a live in-person class to help teach you these kind of techniques about rates that I'm, I'm referencing here, uh, definitely check out testcrackers.org. Or if you are in the mood for a sort of like a, a bigger company experience and you, you don't like that individual attention uh, that we give all our students at Test Crackers, then I recommend the Manhattan Prep classes, the live uh, in-person and online classes. Those are, are great if you get a good instructor. And then uh, I will talk about my study accelerator class at the end because I, I don't really teach those methodologies in the GMAT strategy class. It's more about how to study and how to get those things to work for you on the actual exam, which because the GMAT is just so different from other exams that most people have taken, a lot of people feel that just knowing the material is enough, and unfortunately, it's just not, which is why I created this podcast, why I created the digital uh, class, the GMAT strategy, etc. and uh, more on that later. For now, don't worry if uh, rates are a bit of a struggle for you. 
Um, the next question, number 20, is a little bit weird. Either Salmus reads it or there's a typo in the book, so I'm just going to skip over that. We're going to go to number 21. Number 21 reads, If X and Y are prime numbers, which of the following cannot be the sum of X and Y? Answer A is the number 5. Answer B is the number 9. Answer C is the number 13. Answer D is the number 16. Answer E is the number 23. This question is really going to hinge on a, a, just a bit of content knowledge, which is remembering that 2 is the smallest and the only even prime number. Um, perhaps, obviously, you also need to know what prime numbers are. On, the GMAT defines prime numbers as numbers with exactly two factors. So the number one is not prime on the GMAT, even though it's prime in other situations, I, I think. But you'll want to remember that two is the smallest and the only even prime number as far as the GMAT is concerned. And two has exactly two factors, one and two. Three is the next largest prime number. The only two factors of three are one and three. Five is the next largest prime number. The only two factors of five are one and five. Four is not a prime number because that has three factors. It's divisible by one, by two, and by four. So a prime number is divisible by itself and one, but it has to have exactly two factors so that you don't think that one is prime. But if you remember that two is a prime number, then this question, I think, becomes a little bit more doable for you. So answer choice A is five. That's two plus three. We can make that with two prime numbers, the sum of two prime numbers. Uh, answer choice B is nine. That's two plus seven. Answer choice C is 13, we can make that with 2 plus 11. And answer choice D is 16, that could be 11 plus 5. So there's probably going to be a little bit of guessing and testing involved with these. I think it's a really good tip to at least memorize all the prime numbers from 2 to 19. Those are the ones that come up the most, but if you're targeting a high score, let's say above 650, then you'll want to memorize all the prime numbers up to 100. So from, from 0 to 100, memorize all the prime numbers in there. It'll save you a little bit of time on test day. That's all I've got for you today. I'm spending time working on some free video content that I've been referencing in the past couple weeks, and I'm excited to bring all of you more value with that. In the meantime, my greatest hope, as always, is that this content will make your studies as easy and as painless as they can possibly be. If you want more tips and strategies for optimizing your performance on the GMAT, just head to my website, thegmatstrategy.com, or click the link in the description of this podcast, and check out my free video on how to achieve your goal score in half the normal time and with half the normal effort. The class I offer at the end of that video is a study accelerator class that plugs into any program of study and is a series of videos you can complete in about three hours because I don't go into all the details of facts and figures and formulas like I was talking about earlier in the episode uh, so that you can choose the books, digital self-based class or live class of your choice but still have a major advantage when doing so. If you'd like me personally or any of my awesome colleagues at Test Crackers to teach you every single detail, including the facts and figures and the strategies that you'll need to optimize your performance on the GMAT, just head to testcrackers.org, T-E-S-T-C-R-A-C-K-E-R-S.org, or click the link in the description of this podcast and enter the letters TGS for a $100 price break off any of our class offerings there. In the meantime, this is a weekly show, so please subscribe, and as always, stay positive and stay consistent with your studies. I'll talk to you soon.